0: Hello everyone and welcome to New Books and Art. I'm your host Ricardo and I'm here today to talk to Craig Clunas about his latest book, Chinese Painting and Its Audiences, published by Princeton University Press in 2017. Welcome to the show, Craig.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Now you've done an interview for the New Books Networks in the past and for everyone who didn't know, I encourage you all to listen to a previous episode where Craig Clunas de- Uh, discussed his previous book, Screen of Kings, together with Colin Napi. But anyhow, as this is tradition, could you still briefly introduce yourself, please?
1: Yes. Um, Well, I'm currently professor of the history of art at the University of Oxford. I've been in this post for 11 years now. Prior to that, I've taught at uh, SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies, London University. I've taught at the University of Sussex. um, And I began my career As a museum curator, I worked for about 15 years in the Victoria and Albert Museum in London from the late 70s until the the early 90s. Um, I think of myself as a scholar of Chinese art. I've written a lot about the Ming period, uh, but I also have strong interests in the 20th century. I've always taught the 20th century, and my current thoughts are more about more modern stuff. Um, But the book that we're going to talk about looks at, a span of things from the Ming to the 20th century, so it covers a range of my interests.
0: Absolutely, thank you. Um, before we jump into the book, could you tell us also how you came to write Chinese Painting and its Audiences?
1: Well, Chinese Painting and its Audiences is also the title uh, of a lecture series, uh, which I gave a um, uh, as the Mellon Lectures in the Fine Arts at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. in 2012. Um, So I was invited to give these lectures, to give six lectures, and they'd invited me, ooh, I don't know, it must be three or four years before you actually give them because they expect them to be uh, something new. Um, And I'd already been thinking about a project on these lines. So when I got asked to to give the Mellon Lectures, I knew immediately that this was the project that I wanted to do. And then uh, the Mellon Lectures are rather um, generously funded to the extent that uh, there's always funding to produce a book out of the lectures. In fact, you're, you're contracted to. You have to produce a book out of the lectures. And I was conscious this was only the second time In their history, they go back to the 1940s, but my series in 2012, which had this same title, Chinese Painting and Its Audiences, my series in 2012 was only the first, sorry, was only the second time uh, that they've been on a Chinese topic. The first set of Mellon Lectures to be about uh, Chinese art were given in 2000 by Lothar Lederosa of, of Heidelberg University, and they turned into his book uh, 10,000 Things, a kind of marvellous book. So A, I had a standard to aim at. Um, and I was also thinking about something that is, something that was, more art historical than the last project you mentioned previous project screen of kings which is very much a kind of cultural history book it's very much about ming china um although i hope it's of interest to people who don't work on china it very much aims to be an intervention into into thinking about the ming period so i wanted to do something that was deliberately aimed at a wider audience so that's what the mellon lectures are supposed to be they're they're Public lectures—they're open to anybody. Anybody can come in and hear them. So ideally, you want to produce something which isn't just speaking to a very narrow or a very small specialist audience of your peers. You, you want something that that tackles some of the big questions. So, so that was the kind of that—that that was what was kind of going in my head as I was preparing these lectures over the years, down to 2012, and then it took. Um, another five years um, working on the book, expanding the lectures, filling them out, thinking about, you know, is in a lecture you can kind of, you can say things and get away with it because people aren't allowed to kind of question you. But once you put it in a book and the book is going to have footnotes and the book is going to last, you, you, you feel you have to be a bit more, um, you have to, it's not about taking more care, but it's about taking a different kind of care and communicating in a in a slightly different way, so that that's the kind of backstory uh, to the book.
0: Okay, and the amount of lectures you gave, six in total, that is probably I am assuming um, the amount of uh, book chapters that you have in the book as well. So you start out with the beginning and ending chapter one, but then you go on um, to structure the book according to the following uh, categories: the gentleman, the emperor, the merchant. The nation, and the sixth chapter is called the people. Um, and so, I was wondering, was it really the amount of lectures you were giving, or was there something else to this? Um, t- to, I mean, how you divided the the book.
1: No, it. Well, no, those those were the six lectures, you know, beginning and ending, and then those 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 five themes you've just uh, laid out. Those were the six lectures, and I suppose I, I did want the book to to have a relationship to the lectures. The, the, there's a kind of immediacy about lecturing, and I I didn't want to to tear that structure up and start again at the beginning. Um, so it's sometimes quite helpful to have a kind of um, what do I mean, an arbitrary structure imposed on you? You know, if it had been four lectures, the structure might have been slightly different. Or if they'd wanted eight, um, you know, I'd have had to produce um, um, other stuff. So, no, it's definitely is the case that the fact that I was required to give six lectures um that that relates very much to the six main chapters of the book. There's a little introduction, and then there's a a, a, a short conclusion. But the six the six chapters. I, I mean, I would hope that people who heard the lectures and then who read the book would feel that there was a relationship between them. I mean, I wanted that relationship to be there.
0: Okay, we'll start out. You, I mean, you mentioned the introduction, which will. Um, glance over because we'll touch upon all, I hope we'll touch upon all these topics um, later on in in the interview, but we'll start out with the beginning and ending. Uh, In chapter one, you uh, try and trace back the, as I said, beginnings and endings of quote unquote Chinese painting. Um, The ending might be easier to establish according to you, and you do so by referring to Huang Yongping's work from uh, 1987 called a history of Chinese painting and a concise history of modern painting after two minutes in the washing machine. Could you tell our listeners why this work is so important in relation to what it is that you're doing in your book?
1: Well, in a way, um, I'm not sure it's that important. It's it's a kind of attention-grabbing thing. I mean, I've found from years of teaching um, Chinese art that, you know, people always react very strongly to this. So, so what you've got here is in 1987, the artist Wang Yongping took these two art school textbooks, uh, a history of Chinese painting, which was originally written in Chinese and a concise history of modern painting, which was a Chinese translation of Herbert Reed's, uh, book. Uh, so by an English art historian called Herbert Reed. Um, and he put these two in the washing machine and they cut it the, and for two minutes and destroys them. He destroys these books. They just come out as a pile of wet sludge, and there then this pile of wet sludge is displayed. So it, it's very kind of attention-grabbing. It, it has that kind of—I um, don't know if it's a wow factor. It's maybe more a kind of ooh uh, factor um, about it. Um, but but it it, it it's Huang Yongping to me. What he's saying is you know. The, the story that we've been bro- brought up with is not good enough anymore. Um, you know, a- apart from anything else that the you know, the separation into two completely different things, you know, once these two books have been in the washing machine, they're mashed up together into, you can't tell which is which, um, uh, so in a way, and I'm not the first person to point out, to point this out, and you know this is a very well known work of art. Now it's in it's in lots and lots of survey books. It it stands for one of those um, kind of startling works of the Chinese avant-garde from the 1980s that first grabbed the attention um, of a global audience. Um, I knew that in the book I wasn't going to deal with kind of what you might call the world of contemporary art um, because that seemed to me to be about something different um, and not something that I'm not interested in, but something that I did not want to kind of take on uh, at this at this stage. Uh, and so um, in a way that the, the, that that moment in the 1980s, is very much about the beginning of something, it seems to me, very much about the beginning of kind of a, a, a kind of Chinese contemporary art which, which which demands global attention. But it's also therefore a way of closing off the story. Um, um, so starting with that and saying this is, it's a way of saying this is what I'm not going to deal with.
0: Then maybe let me ask a follow-up question uh, because you, elaborate on the f- first Chinese painting in the album of Bara Mirza in a t- what is today's Iran. And, and then, and, and yeah, so basically I'm wondering if you could tell us more about this first uh, Chinese painting.
1: Well, I mean, one of the things that, that you know, so I've, I've worked a lot on the Ming period and I've written books about, or I've written a book about, you know, the artist Wen Zhengming, you know, whose dates are 1470 to 1559 in the Western calendar. What Wen Ming was doing, what he was doing, uh, he didn't think of it as Chinese painting, nor did his audience think of it as Chinese painting. Um, he thought of it as painting. what? Yeah. Right? He just thought of it as painting. So for a number of years, and this this goes back quite a long way. I mean, I first got interested in this problem about eleven years ago, twelve years ago. When I, sort of when I came to Oxford, and I had to give an inaugural lecture. And I'm I'm the, as I said, I'm a professor of art history at Oxford, but I'm the first person to hold that job to work on something that isn't the Western canon. So my predecessors, very distinguished scholars, have all worked on basically Italian Renaissance or Italian Baroque art and I work on the Ming dynasty so I had to give this inaugural lecture um, and I got interested in this question well when, when what is the first painting to be what are the first things to be described as Chinese paintings, and and it's kind of obvious that it's not going to be within China itself that things get called Chinese paintings. It's going to be outside China that things get called Chinese paintings, and I came across, I was reading David Roxburgh's book um, about the Persian album, and I'd already been vaguely aware of, but I ca- then came across, um, so in the mid-16th century, this album of paintings is assembled for a Persian prince. Um, It has in it, obviously, um, uh, calligraphy and painting from various parts of the Islamic world. It has at least one European image in it, and it has a number of Chinese images pasted into it, um, at least one of which um, is uh, a good bit earlier than the album itself. So the album was made in the 16th century, um, and this picture of two grooms holding a horse um, appears to be an early ming painting so it dates probably from the from the first half of the 15th century which is a period when there's a lot of diplomatic toing and froing between the timurid empire in what is now iran and afghanistan and and early ming china and when this picture this early ming picture was pasted into this album in the 15th century it was given a kind of calligraphic caption in persian which says you know This is one of the good works of the Chinese masters. So in a way, I mean, it's slightly, again, attention grabbing. But I do think that, you know, this is, it might not be the very first, but it's one of the first pictures to be described as a Chinese picture. Um, um, And it's being viewed by an audience outside China, by an audience in Iran, um, and they're looking at it and they're thinking, this is a Chinese picture. This is what a, this is what a Chinese painting looks like. So, so really the point I'm trying to make is that the, 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 although uh, the, 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 the category Chinese painting has a long history, you know, ha, you know if we think of it in global terms, um, and we think of it as a term that obviously is put together outside China, so I'm, I'm not saying that, that, you know, I'm not saying that Chinese painting was invented in the 15th century. Obviously, there are many, many things that we would now call Chinese painting, that you know, back to the, the Song Dynasty or even the Tang Dynasty. But something that – but they were not being called Chinese painting at the time. Um, uh, so I was uh, – you know, I got interested in this, and I just thought this is, again, a way of sort of trying to – Because really, I mean, I suppose the basic problem is that um, my my experience, and this my experience now goes back quite a long way, or you know, long enough, and when you talk about Chinese art to, to a, an audience of non-specialists, and that's what I was doing. Remember, I'm standing in the National Gallery of Art in Washington. And the National Gallery of Art in Washington is, is really the National Gallery of Western art. It doesn't have any Chinese art in it, as, as people will know. If you want to see Chinese art in Washington, D.C., you go across the mall and you go to the Freer Sackler Gallery, and that's where the Chinese collections are. So the National Gallery of Art isn't really the National Gallery of Art, it's just the National Gallery of of Western art. So in a way I'm trying to to make problematic these kind of natural categories of of separation, partly by saying that, you know, A, people outside China have been looking at Chinese art for a long time. This is 600 years old, this this early Ming picture that's pasted in this Persian album. And, And trying to get people to think about some of the, the problems. As I, as I said, my experience is that, that people who aren't special say, oh, oh, I don't know anything about Chinese painting. I know nothing about Chinese painting. But in fact, that's not true. In fact, they have very strong preconceptions, presumptions, you know, uh, um, you know, they, they have a strong set of images of what Chinese painting is going to look like. Um, and, and my argument is partly, or my argument in this chapter is that within art history, you know, Chinese painting has always been present in art history as a discipline. Um, it's, a, it, you know, there have always been, you know, I, I, one of the most famous series of Mellon lectures is, is Ernst Gombrich's series from the 1950s, which became, um, his, his book Art and Illusion. Um, and in there he, he gives us, you know, Chinese painting, it's as if we already always knew what the, this thing is already always known about before it's been studied um, and really what I'm then wanting to do in the rest of the book is step back and and, and look at it um, look at it a bit more and I, I knew from the beginning that I wanted the thing to be chronological so these chapters, the gentleman, the emperor the merchant, the nation, the people I mean I could have called them, you know, the Ming, the Qing, the late Qing the Republic, the People's Republic, but um, that has, you know, that that's a way of putting an audience. That, that's a way, that's not a way of drawing people in. That's a way of pushing people away. So although the structure is broadly chronological, um, it doesn't it doesn't present it. It's not presented to the audience with chronological labels.
0: Um, so in chapter two, called "The Gentleman," you elaborate on this um, idea of on the one hand chinese uh, looking and discussing chinese painting and foreigners looking and discussing chinese painting um it's more about um a chinese audience at this point though um and you discuss the popular visual trope of the four skills or four arts uh shuhua the zither chess calligraphy and paintings these paintings usually depict gentlemen, at least in the earlier period of the Ming dynasty or mid-Ming, um, so gentlemen of wealth and taste who are involved in these uh, one of these four activities, at least in the case of the former three, that is playing zither or chess or writing calligraphy. In the case of painting, however, you show and you, show, you do this by really, you know, um, depicting incredible uh, or giving uh, amazing examples of uh, painting. So in the case of painting, it is not the act of creating a painting, of making the painting, that seems to be considered the art or skill. So could you please elaborate on what it is that these gentlemen are doing instead?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, as I I
1: look, so I, I, you know, sort of at at the core of the whole book, is is a lot of pictures of people looking at pictures. Right? That, that's what I got interested in. That the, within the Chinese tradition, over a very long period, you get pictures which show people looking at pictures. As I gathered more and more of these, it became kind of clear to me that that from the Ming period and the Ming material is you know probably the material that I knew best at the beginning. So I kind of knew that material better than the than some of the later stuff. Um, You never see a Ming painting which shows a gentleman painting, a Ming gentleman painting. Now, there are pictures of of people with brushes in their hands in the Ming period, but they are all, many of them are historical. So there are scenes like the elegant gathering in the Western Garden, which is a kind of Song dynasty, an earlier gathering. They're kind of historical paintings, right? They're deliberately historical. Or um, there are pictures which show people painting, but they are um, lower status professional artisans. So, you know, there's a famous Zhou Ying painting, Spring Morning in the Han Palace, showing an empress having her portrait painted. Well, A, this is a historical painting because it's set back in the Han dynasty. And B, it's a portrait painter. So it's an anonymous kind of portrait painter. It's not, what you never see is the, act of the act of what we call literati painting being being pictured instead what you get is all these pictures of people looking at painting so that when I think about qin qi, shu hua the four skills the zither chess calligraphy and painting it struck me as kind of at the very least kind of worth thinking about that um, that the act of, that, that the representation of qua painting as a kind of topic as a theme is not to show people painting but to show people looking at painting as if somehow looking at painting stood for the conceptual stood for the theme stood for the the discourse of painting um, itself, and so that's really what I what I wanted to think about the 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 the, the Ming idea, and obviously this is a Ming elite idea um, that that painting is that 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 the category is somehow completed by the by the act of viewing that it's the viewer that makes a painting a painting. It's not a painting until it's until it's been viewed, until acts of connoisseurship have been performed on it,
0: I'm just wondering whether you think it worthy. you on expanding on the idea of meta-painture, meta-pictures, and whether you want me to ask the, f- the next question: this act of looking led to the production, or whether you think it better to jump right into the uh, chapter three, the emperor.
1: Um, no, well, I don't mind talking about the the, 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 you know, about this, because apart from anything else, I suppose. So, so Victor Stoikita's book, The Self-Aware Image, was one that, you know, I read it, I thought this is a kind of completely brilliant book, um, and I learned a huge amount from it, but, and there's a big but, which is that he seems to think that this activity of meta-painting, i.e. paintings within paintings, is somehow distinctively European, you know, and he then ties it to the European idea of modernity. So I'm afraid at that point, kind of, you know, red lights start going off for me. You know, all my career, I seem to have been having to deal with scholars of European art who say European art is distinctive because it has X or Y or Z, and they haven't thought about anything other than European art. And the minute you start to look at Ming painting, it's full of these meta paintings are everywhere. You know, these pictures within pictures or pictures that kind of play with the fact of, is this a picture or is this a, 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 a window? You know, they're, they're, they're all over the place. So, you know, full of respect as I am for that as a great work about European art, I'm afraid it just isn't good enough now to 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 talk about you know to talk about one regional tradition and call that art. I mean, in a way that brings us back to the back to the Huang Yongping work. You know that a, a concise Herbert Reed's concise history of modern art isn't a concise history of modern art. It's a concise history of modern European and North American art, as if that could stand for the whole thing, and. You know, my, I like to think that, you know, my whole career has been devoted to kind of trying to say, well, oh, no, you know, you, you can do valuable and important and interesting work on Europe, but don't take the European stuff and say there is this distinctive thing called metapinture, right, which is somehow, you know, a, 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 an index of modernity being something purely European. Um so, so as with a lot of my work, there are elements, you know, there are things that are written against, you know, the things that I want to say, and then there are things where I just want to say, I'm sorry, but you have to take a wider canvas in order. You, you just can't say that about one regional um, tradition, you know? I mean, if, if I said, you know, the, the, the distinctive thing about Chinese art is that it paints the flowers and, you know, that Chinese art paints flowers and, and the natural world, you know, any historian of European art would say, well, I'm sorry, what about European, you know? And it, it you know, it has to go both ways. It has to go both ways.
0: These um, viewerships and the reception of painting is something you, um, as we already said, elaborate on in each and every chapter. And around roughly... Uh, around 200 years after the visual trope of men looking at painting seems to fall out of fashion in China, the subject of the female painter in action seems to experience an upsurge. This is around 1800. So I was wondering if you could elaborate on these depictions of female painters painting and why they are important for the following chapter, chapter three, called the emperor.
1: One of the things I'm, would want to say is that i don't i don't have all the answers you know um i certainly don't have all the answers and i i find this this i mean i i mean i suppose i could be challenged on two counts somebody could just say well look you've you've got it wrong here's a load of examples which show that what you're claiming is not the case and and you know that 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 would be fine um, I mean, it <laughs> would be fine, but I'd just have to live with it, you know. We'll, um, but the fact is that, you know, I, I got, again, just struck by the fact that as I looked at more pictures, and I, and I suppose the thing I want to stress is I looked at a lot of pictures in order to put these lectures together um, and and to write this book. You know, I, 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 I searched for things.
0: And and uh, sorry to interrupt, but the book is uh, visual evidence for that as well, because it's absolutely beautifully and lavishly illustrated.
1: Well, thank you for saying that. Thank you. I'm, very, I'm pleased that you feel that. Um, so, you know, I suddenly come across the fact that, you know, the, these, these pictures of gentlemen looking at pictures start to die out in the Qing period. And then you get this burst in the Qing of female painters. Now, I mean... One could come at this from a number of angles. You know, there's definitely I'm thinking of Susan Mann's work here on on uh, women, you know, elite women in China's long 17th century, where you know it's clearly the case that as the Qing goes on, um, elite the the kind of the cultural practices of elite high status women come to be more visible within culture and i think one of the ways in which they're more visible is that they are then pictured within but 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 why certain i mean i think i think certain tropes certain subject matters die out in chinese painting because because they get hackneyed you know they 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 get over commercialized they get overused they become cliches um all you know, Chinese picturing, all forms of Chinese picturing in the last six hundred years have had to negotiate the fact that pictures are commodities, they are for sale. Picturing is a is a high cultural practice, but, but it can also just you know, pictures can be bought and sold and therefore there's it seems to me that certain things die out just because they, they get they get worn out, they get exhausted, they get overused. and um, and a new subjects kind of appear or new styles appear. Um, but I, I do not have, you know, a slam-dunk answer. It's a great question, but I do not have a kind of, well, here's the answer, kind of answer as to why this stuff um, why certain kinds of images die out and, and, and certain appear. If we're thinking about the, the, the kind of the relationship of, the, of female painters to, to chapter two, chapter two, I mean, obviously, um, you know, there's a whole, the emperor, there's a whole kind of body of material, um, showing, uh, viewing within the context of imperial courts and most of it 18th century. You know, most a lot of it, a lot of it Chenlong period. So this did enable me to kind of move on from the Ming um, and and think about think about the uh, the the, the Chenlong period. Think about the the um, uh, the kinds of images that are being produced in the imperial court, which are often kind of distinctively new types. New types of subject matter, new types of scale, for example, you know, they're colossally big, or or or, or tiny, small. Many of these things. Um, so it, you know, you're trying also in a lecture series, and and I hope also in the book to kind of provide some hooks that you you want people to come back next week. So so there has to be a bit of a cliffhanger <laughs> at the end of each lecture, where you hope that people are going to think, well, that was interesting. Let's come back next week and see what he's got to say about about you know, taking taking that a bit further.
0: And I think you do that quite successfully with, um, you know, ending the second chapter with these uh, female um, artists uh, in action. Um, And it seems to me, maybe I misread this, but as if, you know, you make a point um, of the male gaze Um, that comes into play when we look at the emperor and the Tianlong emperor is a great example, the male gaze that kind of subsumes this multi-ethnical Qing empire under his own um, eyes in the form of paintings. And and you mentioned the very large-scale paintings and all the other um, elaborate productions that were made at the Qing court.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's always a risk about, you know, taking – taking the, the, it's too easy to get captured by that gaze sometimes. I mean, you know, one, one doesn't want to think that, you know, the Chenlong court is not the only game in town in 18th century China. And I, I suppose that would therefore, you know, this this book is not a, Comprehensive study of absolutely everything that happened with the viewing of painting in China between the Ming and the twentieth century. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't claim to have that degree of of um, absolute comprehensiveness. So it, it it's themes within the viewing of Chinese painting. Um, I think. I mean. So so let me let me also say, and I, you know, I think, you know, one one would. I hope this is obvious, but a book like this is massively indebted to the scholarship that people have done on specific themes and specific topics. You know, If you, if you set out to do this kind of overview type thing, you have to be very dependent on what other people have done. Uh, And, you know, I hope here I've used other people's scholarship respectfully. I think there's, you know, been some great work by younger scholars um, and great work continued by older scholars as well, um, you know, in the past 20 years. And here I'm trying to sort of pull some of that together. And some of that great work has been about the kind of the particular visuality of the Qing uh, imperial court. Um, And so... You know, I couldn't not use that material. I, you know, I, I thought this is great stuff. I want to build on this scholarship. I want to try and tie it in with with other stuff that, that that's going on, um, because I think I think everybody wants to have their work kind of used. You know, I mean, they want to have it used respectfully, and they want to be properly acknowledged. And I hope I've done that throughout this book. Um, but you know, I, I didn't make all of this out out of my own head. I worked with the work that other people have done um, on specific topics. And, and I couldn't have done it without that. Mm,
0: and you, you mentioned, I mean, you acknowledge that as well in the introduction um, very kindly. But if we come back to Chapter 3, uh, The Emperor, even if this is just one example of how the history of Chinese painting um was written in a way. Um, I was wondering if you could go on to elaborate on how the imperial court was the site of both the production and the destruction of painting.
1: I suppose what I meant by that was that, that what, what struck me was that th- there are two kind of contradictory things going on at the, at the, at the imperial court in the Chenlong period. So one is the creation of the canon of Chinese painting through things like Baji and the kind of, well, apart from anything else, the canonization of Dong Qichang as the great connoisseur of all time, you know, well-established, you know, the Chenlong Emperor models his own calligraphy style on Dong Qichang. Uh, you know, Dong Qichang's ideas become the kind of, you know, they, they have a kind of quasi-official, quasi kind of state view so so you know so and and that state view is very very you know that that the chenlong filter on pre-ching painting has been very powerful down to the 20th century not least because you know it's in the chenlong period that the imperial collections are formed that become the Collections of the two, the Palace Museum, and then when those two collections are split in in the in the in the 40s, you know the, the collection in Taipei becomes, if you like, the collection that um, American scholars, Western scholars, have most access to. You know, so so it plays a large part in kind of defining what we think of today as the canon of Chinese painting. So, th- so that's one impulse. But the other impulse is there's all this other weird stuff going on, right? So, all things like these Tong Jing that, that Christina Kloetgen has written a marvelous book about, um, uh, these kind of large scale um, uh, fixed point perspective things. There's all this uh, kind of interaction with Western forms of picturing. Uh, you know, there's, there's a whole load of stuff going on at the core, which is absolutely not the canon of Chinese painting as we know it today so I suppose that's what I meant by the court is both the site of the the creation of the Canon and the kind of subverting maybe not maybe destruction of the canon is the wrong word but there's a kind of subversion of the canon uh, going on at the imperial court through the great range of Other kinds of picturing, including things like religious picturing, you know, including things like portraiture, imperial portraiture, um, that is very, very different from the the kind of literati canon as filtered through the Chen Long reading of Dong Chang. Does that does that make sense?
0: Absolutely, and this ties in perfectly with the next chapter, which is uh, the merchant.
1: Yeah, I mean, partly because, you know, courts are also centers of, you know, of great kind of commercial um, activity. Um, and and in a way, the, the this chapter, although the chapter is a broadly chronological, a merchant takes us back, you know, it steps back into the Ming as well and looks at some of these um, pictures of... Uh, urban landscapes which have within them meta painting or scenes of, of the viewing of painting but very much not the viewing of painting in in a kind of connoisseurly gentleman sitting in a garden setting but the connoisseurship of painting as painting is in its commodity phase as painting you know, painting in the shops shop you can see people going around the antique shops and and shopping for painting. Um, and I, you know, I just thought that was, I just love that, you know, that stuff. I think, I think some of it is kind of extremely, extremely interesting. Um, and then it gave me a chance to talk about, about the 19th century and some of the ways in which merchant, um, collectors, um, in the Qing period, um, and people involved in trade, people involved in trade with the West, people involved in trade with Japan, um, the roles that they played in the kind of formulation of of, of canonical forms of Chinese painting through, for example, you know, the, the, the great Cantonese merchant collectors of the early 19th century have what we would think of as impeccably canonical taste. Who do they like? They like Shenzhou, they like Wen Zhengming, they like Dong Chang. But they're also, these are the kind of people who are at the same time paying to have their portraits um, done in oils by, um, by either by European artists or by European or by Chinese artists who've received um, a European training. so again I mean I, th- I think thinking about it I'm always I'm always trying to question the existence of pure essences i'm I'm always trying to show how, entangled and complex and therefore in my view more interesting um, the body of material is. This is this is definitely an attempt, it's not a comprehensive book by any means, but it still attempts to look across a wide range of types of images. It attempts to say not how can we define Chinese painting, but it attempts to show how how kind of The actual range of actual works of art that comes down to us from the last 600 years is is wonderfully too diverse and wonderfully too interesting to um, admit of any very narrow, kind of pure, essential definition.
0: And yet that seems to be what art historians in the past, both in China and outside, have done or not
1: well, uh, well i mean you could you well so you could say that this is one of the things that art history has done you know that, that art history has always had art history as an academic discipline is founded on this idea of you know well it, it it's founded on this idea of schools you know so if we go in, in you know if we go back to european you know the european early modern and somebody like giorgio vasari What's Vasari's interested in is saying, well, what's different between the art of... How does does the art of Venice differ from the art of Florence, right? I suspect that somebody, you know, a visitor from... If there had been a visitor from Ming, China, who'd seen kind of European 16th century art, I think they would have felt it all looked the same, essentially. <laughs> but, but, you know, for Vasari, it's very important to get what is the essence of Florentine art, what is the essence of Venetian art, and he comes up with this. Well, Florentine art is all about line and disegno and drawing, and Venetian art is all about colour. And then Winkelmann in the 18th century, and then in the 19th century when you galleries, you know, you you've got you've got schools. You know, the National Gallery. You know, it's still about putting all the Dutch stuff together and putting all the all the kind of North Italian stuff together and putting all the putting all the French stuff together. And then in the 20th century, you get so you know you get somebody like the great, um, you know, uh, refugee art historian. Um, uh, uh, you know, so Pevsner when he comes to Britain, actually he wasn't a refugee, but. Pezner comes to Britain and, you know, um, he writes, you know, he gives a famous series of lectures in the 1950s called, you know, The Britishness of British Art, you know. And really that, the, the Britishness of British art, the Frenchness of French art, the Chineseness of Chinese art, the Indianness of Indian art, the, the Yoruba-ness of Yoruba art, that, that's very kind of deeply inscribed into art history as an academic discipline, I feel. And, 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 and something that, you know, we're only really beginning to think about how comfortable are we with this, what are the problems with this, um, is that really the way that, is that really the more because, I mean, I suppose what gets me is that in order to do, you can always do that. You can always say, well, Chinese art is all about X, or British art is all about Y. But in order to do that, you've got to leave out large chunks of the evidence. You, you've, you've got to pick a series of pictures. I mean, so that if I say Chinese art is all about expressive brushwork and a, and a complete lack of interest in the mimetic, I could I could give you six lectures that make that case. But in order to make that case, I'd have to just like not show you all the counter examples, all the, all the pictures which come down to us from the past, which are maybe are about something else. Um, and I just think that, I mean, the reason, Ch- the reason Chinese art is so wonderful is it's not all about one thing. I mean, that, that seems to me to be part of its greatness. Its, di- its greatness lies not in its its narrowness and purity. Its greatness lies in its diversity.
0: And this book is, at the very least, a testimony to this great diversity. But it is much more as well, because... It looks at the history of art by way of looking at the different audiences and spectators. We've talked about the literati or scholarly elites and their meta paintings, and we've mentioned the emperor and the imperial workshop, who are both active producers of paintings and participants in writing a canon. In chapter four, we move on to another kind of audience, that of the merchant who although mostly in the southern southern port cities such as Guangdong, far removed from imperial court in Beijing, nevertheless also functioned as important intermediary or gatekeepers, if you will, of what was to be traded as painting. Um, As you make very clear in in this chapter and the following, however, there was um, exchange and interchange between these two, of course. As such, the commercial view, the view of the merchant and the consumer is every bit as much part of what makes painting painting as is the disinterested gaze of the gentleman whom we've looked at uh, just before. The rhetoric, however, was often quite different from what was actually happening. And I was thinking of taking the example of uh, the merchant Pan Jong-wei as you do in the book, but we could talk about anything else as well. And and he collected works of Dong Tang and other, you know, schol- literati painters, as we call them today, whilst at the same time mediating trade with oil paintings done by Chinese artists in China for a foreign audience. So in that way, um, in your words, trade has always acted to make impossible the purity of painting. And we've talked about this, you know, this pure essence that is... Um, non-existent uh, before. But I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about this seeming disjoint between art historical narratives on the one hand and global trade in the 19th century on the other.
1: Sure. In some ways, I, I think one of the key words in that sentence is always, um, because I think you know there are ways in which we could go back in time, right back into the Ming period. If we had better evidence, I'm sure we could go further back, back into the Song period and talk about, For example, I think that it's highly likely that specific types of image for foreign audiences were being made in China long before the kinds of Chinese export painting that we're familiar with in Guangdong from the the 18th and 19th centuries. And we do have a few examples of that. So, for example... Uh, we have these images, which we know were produced in in Ningbo or in other co- or in other port cities in the Ming period, which must have been for Japanese customers because they show specifically Japanese deities, deities that had no meaning for, for a Chinese audience. So these are things that were painted in China for Japanese audiences. And I suspect that there are certain kinds of religious images. The workshops of Ningbo were producing those kinds of images for Japanese audiences um you know way back into the song period but when we get to the to the Ching, to the to the 18th and and in particular I think to the 19th century we, we've just got physically uh, a huge quantity more evidence and and it, I, I find it quite sort of piquant that you know the very first book I ever wrote the first book that's got my name on the spine um, it's a book that I wrote when I, in the early 1980s, when I was a V&A curator. Um, and it's called Chinese Export Watercolors. And the V&A has quite an, like, like many, many British museums, the V&A has a kind of extensive collection of these watercolors. Um, and really hasn't known what to do with them. You know, they, they've never been part of the story of Chinese art. Um, and they've never been part of the story of European art either because, you know, they're produced in China. So, so they are themselves kind of troubled and, and troubling um, objects. And in a way, I, you know, I thought about these right at the beginning of my career and I wanted, I've always been interested in them. I've never lost interest in them. And I wanted to come back and think about some of those images and the ways in which they both are and are not part of the story of Chinese art. And by kind of not being part of Chinese art, they, they act to define the boundaries of what Chinese art is, or at least they've done so up until very recently. I mean, I think it's really interesting that, you know, there's much more interest in this kind of object in China now and there have been publications in Chinese and exhibitions uh, of material from, from the British Library from the BNA have been have been shown in, in China so there's a beginning you know of an attempt to to think well how how would we fit these things in? How could these things be part of this thing called Chinese painting? But I, I would stick to my view that for most of their history They've acted rather to to kind of, they've acted as the boundaries of that category, of of showing us what doesn't count. And I think that becomes quite important. And this is not a point that I developed in the book, but I think is one that I, I would want to develop maybe in future. They're part of the problem of why certain kinds of modern Chinese art, I'm talking about the earlier part of the 20th century, but why certain kinds of modern Chinese art also get get sort of written out of the story as not really being being Chinese.
0: Mm, Excellent. Thank you. Um, This ties in nicely with the following chapter, um, chapter five, The Nation, in which we move um, on and into the 20th century. and um, Chinese painting Becomes a, a sort of intimately intertwined co-production of sight, of sites, um, as you call it, and and you know you you talk about this co-production of Chinese and Western, and how how these um, terms are kind of obsolete in a way already in previous chapters as well, but um, in the twentieth century Chinese painting also reached a truly global audiences. And so I would like you to talk a little bit more about the development of painting and the many art historical discourses and alternative voices, if you will, that, that were happening at the t- same time taking place.
1: Well, I, th- I think one of the points I'd want to start from, uh, what do I what do I mean by kind of co-production? I suppose to an extent here, I'm backtracking on things I've kind of written earlier or on the way I'm trying to be clearer about some of the things that I've written earlier so you know about 20 years ago I did this book for Oxford University Press which I called Art in China and the introduction to that makes a big song and dance. Of course, this is completely meaningless when the book is translated into Chinese, but in English, I would submit that there's a significant difference between the concept of Chinese art and the concept of art in China. The Chinese art is about an essence, a category, a, a, a kind of, uh, a, a kind of bounded thing. Um, and so one of the ways I've noticed that people have often read that Is they read that as if I'm saying that the category of Chinese art is some kind of external imposition, and in particular, it's a kind of orientalist imposition. You know, it's part of 19th and early 20th century ideas which kind of essentialize and reify um, Chinese culture, or lots of different aspects of Chinese culture, and one of them is Chinese art. I think in this book what I'm what I'm trying to make more clear is that I I don't think that Chinese art is um, an essence which has always existed since the dawn of time, which would be one older way of looking at it. But nor do I think that it is a simple imposition from outside. What I think it it arises out of is a very complex set of dialogues and interactions and back and forth and to and fro which is both a back and forth and a to and fro of ideas it's a back and forth and a to and fro of of um of people um and above all it's a back and forth and to and fro of our objects which actually you know physically move across the globe and appear in different places and start to appear in europe from the 16th century, the whole kind of wunderkammer, kunstkammer kind of phase of of collecting, um, and which get a particular uh, impulse once you start to get museums in in Europe, museums in North America, collecting this category that for them is, is Chinese art. And it's not simply about they have invented this category because they are themselves looking at what people in China are saying about this and the people in china looking at what people are saying in the west about this so that's what i mean by by kind of co-production you can't say that this this concept chinese painting as it develops uh, in in the more modern period you can't say that it's either uh, completely chinese and indigenous in its in its creation nor is it completely extraneous and foreign it, it is it is it is the result of some form of, of to and fro and interaction and engagement. And, it, and it's hard to find the right words for it. And, and, and that's why, I mean, co-production maybe isn't the best term. I'd be interested if you've got a better term or if, if anybody else thinks they've got a, a kind of better way of explaining what's going on. I, I know what I feel is going on there. I'm finding it kind of difficult to maybe to express it with quite the lucidity that I would hope for.
0: I think you expressed it quite well in the book and and you make this point very clear um and in as such it almost feels as though uh, you are somewhat uh, flying in the face of previous scholarship if you will which is seems to me um what you're doing in chapter 6 the people as well where you elaborate on the people replacing the nation as the central <laughs> Enabling discourse of power and culture in the uh, People's Republic of China after 1949, and how Chinese painting came to be seen as a totem of uh, Chineseness, Chinese ness mostly within China, and then especially, um, I know I, I'm separating, you know, China here and and the rest. Um, I'm aware of this, but um, it seems that at the same time, especially in Europe and North America, during the aftermath of the founding of the PRC and during the Cold War, the reception of Chinese art seems to have taken on a very different art historical narrative. And you're kind of politicizing the, you know, these common art historical uh, rhetorics um, of the time, which all stipulate most of them stipulated that um, the scholarly elite class of the past was the one and only true and great art of painting ever produced in China. And for me, this point was really important um, because this is still how I first learned about Chinese painting when I started studying at university.
1: I'd come back, you know, the the nation in Chapter 5 and the people in Chapter 6... Are still seen, or, or I'm still trying to think about them as kinds of audience. I mean, obviously they're not individual. There's a sort of shift there, isn't there? You know, the gentleman, the emperor, the merchant. We can kind of imagine our gentleman and emperor, our merchant, but the nation and the people are not imaginable as individuals. I mean, they're they're very deliberately not imaginable as individuals. Um, but but it. it I suppose it's partly a question of who is painting for, who's painting for. Um, and I suppose I'm arguing that in the late 19th century, in the Republican period, this there develops this idea that painting, and that would mean both contemporary painting and the painting of the past are for the nation so that, you know, the art, the the painting of the Song and Yuan and Ming and Qing periods comes to be seen as China's heritage, you know, this concept of of the nation's heritage. And that's obviously linked to the development of museums in China, the development of a discourse of art history in Chinese, the the kind of tentative developments of of a discourse of art history about China in the European languages, and then after 1949, well, who is art for? Well, well, that's a kind of no-brainer of a question because you know the the Mao's talks at the Yan'an Forum, you know, tell us what art is for. Art is for the people. So in a way, the kind of titling of those chapters was sort of almost easier than the titling um, of the earlier chapters, and I think it's 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 kind of almost inescapable that 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 that. In these later periods, in the 20th century, and this is two chapters where I'm, I'm trying to write about the 20th century. I, I mean, perhaps I should say that, um, although I haven't written very much about the 20th century up to now, and most of what I've written has been about the main period, um, ever since I left the VA, uh, museum in the early 1990s, I've always taught, um, a course on 20th century Chinese art. So I've, I've been teaching courses on, and of course, when I started, it was just 20th century Chinese art. It went down to the 1990s, and now the course that I teach goes down to, you know, 2018. You know, it, it kind of goes down to now. Um, so I've always taught this, and I've always thought about it. And indeed, even when I worked in the museum in the 1980s, I think I was part of that move, which was widespread at the time, to take the 20th century a bit more seriously in its own terms. So I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that when I joined the v in the late 1970s, the prevailing sense in the field, certainly in the museum, was that Chinese art came to an end with the death of the Chenlong Emperor, you know, end of the 18th century, end of Chinese art. Um, certainly, the museum was not collecting anything nineteenth and twentieth century, and and I was part of a kind of generation of curators that said, well, no, we want to we want to kind of look at this material. So I've always been kind of interested in this material and always thought about its kind of problems, but but this was thinking about its audiences, um, uh, and and you can't obviously when you get to the twentieth century, you you can't separate. The Chinese audience from the global audience. Many of the key players in China were, you know, formed as intellectuals by the experience of study in the West. Um, you know, the key Western writers about it were many of them formed by long years of residence in China. You know, the 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 kind of this is over here and that is over there. Um, Aspect which, which art history has always been keen on, you know, art history has always been keen on. I, I sort of said this earlier, I think, in the interview, you know, it's always been keen on, on sort of purity and boundaries and hasn't been so keen on, on messing things up. I mean, the, you know, the extreme example of that, you know, you go back to the 19th century, Victor Segalen writes a book about Chinese sculpture, and he leaves out all the Buddhist sculpture. On the grounds that Buddhist sculpture isn't really Chinese because Buddhism came from India. Now, nowadays, we think that's completely crazy. Nobody would teach a course on Chinese sculpture and leave out, you know, Dunhuang or Longman um, or Datong. You know, they just would not do that. But it's still perfectly possible to teach a course on Chinese painting and just talk about certain kinds of image, you know, just talk about that kind of Little painting. Now, the, the kind of the ideas I'm pursuing now, and these are ideas that I've, I've been thinking about since I uh, finished the book, are the ways in which, particularly in the Republican period, um, the ideas that we now take for granted about the canon of Chinese painting, about the dominance of the literati tradition, to what extent are those actually kind of pre-modern ideas? Um, I mean, I'm not saying they're not pre-modern ideas, but but to what extent are they? Given a very particular spin in the early 20th century by Chinese intellectuals, who, for quite understandable reasons, do want to, you know, for quite understandable political reasons, want to um, want, want to solve this question of what is really Chinese, what is it that we're hanging on to, what is our heritage, what is valuable, what are we taking forward into the future? It, it, you know, it's 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 more than completely understandable why. Why people in the early twentieth century um should want to do this and i'm I'm not kind of like blaming them for doing it or saying they should have they should have done something else, but I think that we do need to think about uh you, you know that in thinking about the past um that we that we can't write history without always at the same time writing historiography and we can't do historiography without doing history at the same time you know i, I don't think these are two separate things so you know let's write let's write a historiographical account and then do the proper history or or let's just do straight history and forget about the problems of historiography it seems to me that so much of of the account that we have of of the art of china's past was a kind of running before we could walk you know that that the overviews were written long before the detailed work was done um and you know maybe i'm as guilty of this as the next person but that we kind of we kind of did these surveys and overviews really before we'd done a lot of the detailed work and that there's you know there's a whole load more detailed work to be done on specific periods, specific theories, specific artists. But I am interested, the, the ideas that I want to take forward now, I hope into a next book, are ideas about the ways in which um, what people thought and did and the art that they made in the early 20th century has conditioned the ways that we think about the art of the pre-modern period
0: that sounds like an absolutely fascinating um book and i'm looking forward to reading it i suppose to conclude this interview i'd like you to talk about um ways i, I suppose you just mentioned one um your, your you know your new book um forthcoming book or book project at least um but i'd like you to talk about in um about ways in which we can move forward and away from the many biases that you've kind of uh laid open throughout the book uh, Chinese painting and its audiences um, and in the very last sentence of your book, you suggest that we ought to think uh, start thinking about and thinking with Chinese paintings and yet these biases um, are also reflected not just in our museum collections and scholarships. Uh, but perhaps most importantly, today also reproduced in of, uh, online, in on the internet, and in digital databases that we often work with. Um, and so I was wondering, what do you think we, uh, you know, ha- how do you think we can aim at succeeding at a more globalized approach to?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think this is a, this is a problem that I worry about a lot. That I don't really have a solution. To. Um, but I worry that we kind of kid ourselves that we now have access to everything. I mean, I mean you know, it's getting ever so much better. I mean, when I, when I came to Oxford 11 years ago, an um, art store was a relatively new uh, project um, at that point. And I remember at the time there was very little uh, Chinese art on art store. It was very heavily biased towards European art, um, and it's got ever so much better since then. I mean, the people at Artstor have put a lot of effort into it, but what have they done? What they've done is they've they've digitized the museum collections, and and that's obviously the sensible thing to do. What, what else? What else would you do? How else could you start? But if the problem is that those collections were formed with a certain set of presuppositions about what did and what did not um constitute Chinese art. Then, then you're kind of left with um, a kind of digitized version of the situation as before. Um, you know, I, I, I worry, you know, if we think about these huge projects in China to kind of publish great volume, you know, the, I can't remember what the name of the series is, but, you, you know, vast volumes of kind of all the paintings in all the museums in China but if you dig into it what you'll see is that these are um, the, these are selections they are not the whole thing you know they're not everything that there is um, you know so there's always a kind of selectivity there's always a kind of agenda there um, and this is particularly problematic because you know as I'm, as I'm sure many people know you know it's getting harder and harder. I think, to get access to actual museum collections. It's very hard to get access to museum collections in China. Um, uh, it, it's not that easy to get access to museum collections. Uh, you know, it's, it's better in Europe. It's better in North America. But, you know, it's getting harder to get kind of unmediated access. To just, you know, you can't, you can't walk up at a museum nowadays and just say, like, show me what you've got. You know, you, you will be directed to kind of databases and so on, which often have been filtered in terms of, well, you know, we'll digitize all the important stuff. But of course, if you if you digitize all the important stuff, you've, you've kind of already made the decision about what it is that matters, what it is that should be kind of, um, uh, you know, and, and so, so you kind of work with it. I mean. To be utterly melodramatic about it, you know, there's a great feminist slogan, isn't there, that the the master's tools will never demolish the master's house, and and uh, you know, if the if the tools we've got are the tools that, that were, I mean, I think it's very and I, I I base this partly on my own kind of experience as a museum curator. Museum collections were usually I don't think it's controversial to say that every museum collection had a kind of agenda behind it. You know, the, the, usually agendas about quality or about comprehensiveness or, or about kind of. Um, and, and therefore, it's very difficult to make those collections then say something different. Collections say what it is that they were formed to say. They're not raw data. A, a museum collection is not like a library full of books. I mean, obviously, libraries full of books have their own agendas and their own silences and their own exclusions. Um, but it's different with a museum. And, and time and again, curators now want the collections to say something new or something different about changed agendas. But it's very, very difficult, in my view, to get to get collections um, to do that. So one problem is like, we've lost very large quantities of the material from the past. And I think we have to start by by recognizing that what we've got from the past, let's take the Ming just as an example. What we've got from the Ming is only a fraction of what was ever created, but it isn't an equal fraction. So there might be certain kinds of thing where... um, I'm making these figures up, but imagine that there are certain categories of material where 5% of what was created survives today. And there might be other categories where, you know, only 0.5% of what was created survives today. And even more, there might be categories where 0% or close to 0%. Um, of what was created survives today and and you know what survives today is not necessarily the best guide to what existed um, and it's certainly not the best guide to what was most um, important Um, and in particular kind of you know the wider spread of pictures through a culture you know the kind of the lower end of stuff the the lower quality things Um, you know there's been just colossal losses of that material which make it very difficult now I mean that's not just a problem in Chinese art. That's a problem, you know, for the art studying the art of any any time and and any place. But I think it has particular twists in China, which are also related to the difficulties of access to the stuff that is sitting in museums labeled as poor quality, you know, fakes, not very interesting. I mean, the late James Cahill, uh, you know, towards the end of his life, he, di- he did, you know, he was doing great work, I think, in in trying to look at stuff that had been left outside the canon. And, and I'm certainly not saying I'm the only person kind of doing this. It's, it's a, you know, it's a more widespread trend. And I'd make the point that we don't want to stop looking at the canon as well. Dong Chi Chang is visual culture too. Visual culture doesn't mean all the things that aren't Dong Chi Chang. It means Dong Chi Chang and all the other things um, as well. I I think that's that's a point I I just think you can't stress often enough.
0: As a uh, sort of sidetrack, and I think this, again, ties in nicely with what we were talking about, um, you know, accessing material, uh, be it online or offline, um, you've agreed to talk about the mechanics of producing such a elegantly um, and lavishly uh, illustrated book. And so I was wondering if you could just, you know, for the last few minutes, um, tell our listeners a bit more how you came to um, publish these lectures, expand on the, the, the Mellon lectures that you've given, that you've started out with, and then, you know, every step along the way to produce this book.
1: Sure. So, yeah. Because I think, I think we don't talk about these things often enough, you know, the, or we do talk about these things very much to one another. This is the kind of, you know, wherever two art historians are gathered together, they will start to complain about the difficulty of sourcing images for publication. Um, but, uh, we don't talk about these things sort of very much in public. So I'm absolutely kind of delighted to have the opportunity to, to kind of credit and thank some of the people who sort of made this possible. So the Mellon Lectures, you give the Mellon Lectures and you sign a contract that that you will provide Princeton University Press with a book. Um, And then the National Gallery of Art in Washington um, is responsible for doing the work to source the pictures for you. And and anybody who's ever sourced the pictures for a book will know that to have somebody else do it for you is just the greatest privilege and the greatest treat in the world. I mean, I've done it myself for a number of books. You know, I know what it costs, you know, costs financially. Um, and here it didn't cost me anything. There are funds that, that, that the National Gallery of Art, the Mellon funding just, uh, supports that. Um, but even more to work with, you know, and I, I'd, I'd love to have an opportunity to thank, or in public, to again thank a wonderful lady who I've never met called Ingrid Jung. Ingrid worked for the National um, Gallery of Art in Washington D.C., um, and Ingrid sourced the pictures from Chinese museums for me, um, and, and from sources around the world. And Ingrid was fantastically. Um, tenacious, fantastically patient, you know, again and again she would say, well you know, I've got this version of it but I'm sure we can get a better one if I try harder and and go for it again so, you know, to thank Ingrid and to thank Michelle Comey, my my editor at Princeton University Press um, it's a real privilege to produce a book that has this kind of support, I just wish that every author in the world, and in particular kind of authors at the beginning of their careers because that's when they need it best, so if anybody out there wants to kind of leave a very large fund of money it would be to provide kind of picture research facilities for young art historians at the start of their career so that that, that somebody will take that burden off them and do it. I'm, I'm very grateful that somebody took that burden off me. Um, I'd love to see that um, potential, that, that possibility made, made available to other people.
0: Perfect, what more's there to say, uh, Craig? I thank you very much for this uh, wonderful interview and wish you best of luck with the following book project.
1: Thank you very much indeed.